You're listening to Upside Down, a podcast on spirituality and culture. No topic is off limits, so join us for unscripted conversations on God's Upside Down Kingdom. Welcome to episode 45 of the Upside Down Podcast. This is Lindsay Wallace, and I will be your host today. With me, I have the trustworthy, always here, Kayla Craig. <laughs> trying to think of something to say you're actually late <laughs> late tonight which is not likely but you're always I, I was just sitting here like what's she gonna say where's she gonna where's she going with this <laughs> so i did want to tell you something funny i read on the internet today um someone said that podcasts are like the lower back tattoos of this generation which, <laughs> like everyone has one you know was the what was wow. being insinuated there. So I thought that was funny and just wanted to thank our listeners for letting us be your lower back tattoo. We will be your butterfly. That's such an honor. <laughs> <laughs> so we're talking about immigration today. And immigration has become a polarizing and politicized topic in our country and in our world. Um, demeaning phrases and overwhelming statistics are thrown around with frightening ease. And often it seems we've forgotten that we're talking about real people. So Mm. we've invited our guest today, Sarah Quezada, to remind us of the humanness of immigration. So Sarah Mm. is a writer, a nonprofit professional in Atlanta, Georgia. She has a master's degree in sociology and more than a decade of experience working across cultures and leading conversations about justice, faith, and serving among the poor. Her writing has been published in Christianity Today, Relevant, Sojourners, among others, and she and her husband, Billy, are raising two kids in Atlanta. So Sarah, thanks for joining us today. Oh, thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. I was wondering if you could kick us off by telling us about your first encounter with immigration. Yes. You know, it's such an interesting question because I feel like I was sort of raised in an environment where I wasn't necessarily noticing who was around me or where people were from. But uh, when I think about that specific question, my first encounter, I have a very clear memory of as a young child. um, My mom had probably through our church uh, volunteered to help an Eastern European family who had recently immigrated to the U.S. And we would sometimes like give them rides places and things like that. Um, But I feel like that was sort of my first and only encounter um, specifically around immigration. And we never, I don't remember really talking much about it at that time. Um, But for me, where immigration really became part of my life was After I finished graduate school, I got a job in Los Angeles. And so I was living in Kentucky and um, that's where my family lives still now and moved across the country to L.A. And it was a huge culture shock for me in a lot of ways. Um, I had been involved in urban ministry in Atlanta before that time. And so I was drawn to the city. I was connected to kind of the diversity and the the bustle of so many people. But when I moved to LA, it was a completely um, different kind of experience. And all of a sudden I was living in neighborhoods. The neighborhood I was living in actually has one of the highest immigrant um, percentage population, like even in the city of LA. So Mm -hmm. for me, it was kind of like this huge switch, especially at that time I had never been outside the country. I didn't have a passport. (laughs) And moving to LA was, was just a very, um, was a very eye-opening and kind of different experience because suddenly I was around people who were speaking different languages. Um, the signs were in different languages, different kinds of mm-hmm. foods I had never encountered. Um, yeah, I was, I, I, I like grew up eating Taco Bell and then I was like, what are these tacos? They're like flat and small <laughs> and <laughs> this is clearly not a taco. Um, I was, I was mistaken. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah. So can you tell us about when you met your husband and what that experience was like? Absolutely. So we, um, a few months after I moved to LA, um, I met a boy and he and I were, we kind of were at the same church at the same time and we kind of started hanging out and um, he was from Guatemala. And at that time, I, my roommates and I were planning a trip to Guatemala because 
I, I worked um, part of the work I was doing. I was working with um, immigrant families in L.A. So I wanted to work on my Spanish because I was not bilingual. So I started talking to him about Guatemala and he was like, you're going at the very worst possible time of the year. It's like rainy season and all this stuff. But I think for me, it was I didn't exactly know how to exactly how to engage maybe with somebody who was from such a different culture. Um, and yet we had so much in common. And so it was sort of this interesting little dance at the beginning <laughs> of of our relationship because I was like, in some ways we're very different. And then in some ways we're very much the same. And especially as we would talk about our hometowns, I was like, it feels like Guatemala and Kentucky are the same place. <laughs> like, <laughs> especially both living in LA where it was so deserty and we had both come from very green um you know, places in the world and very agricultural in a lot of ways. And so we just kept finding all of these similarities. And as, as our relationship grew, um, you know, I didn't know, I didn't know much about immigration. I mean, even then I had interacted briefly with immigrants or I had a relationship with immigrants, but I had never really kind of dug into what the system was really all about. I was very much um, coming from a place of like, you know, people, we should welcome people and people should follow the law. It's that simple. <laughs> like I had this idea that, um, you know, as, as a good Christian, we should be kind, we should be welcoming, but also people should follow the law. And, and I really felt like that was a pretty balanced view to have. And that was kind of how I walked into it. So when we were on our third date and uh billy told me that he had come to the u.s on a visa but that visa had since expired and he was therefore living undocumented in los angeles um, my first thought was you know to myself was like man if this relationship gets serious i i hope he works that out that was really like i just assumed that he just needed to like take a half day off of work go to an embassy like, you know, <laughs> fill out an online form and this could all be taken care of. I thought it was like going to the DMV, um, mm -hmm. which is also actually not that simple. But um, immigration <laughs> was next level. It's <laughs> not that simple. For sure. <laughs> yeah, so that for us really began this journey together of like tiptoeing into the immigration system. Um, well, yeah. I say tiptoeing. It felt more like I was just thrown into a pool. Um, mm. of kind of figuring out all the different ways that that would affect our relationship and life together. Sarah, when I listen to you, I, I'm struck by your humility. Like you're not like, well, I studied this and I knew what was going on and I'm an expert and I've always been an expert because oh, no. I really consider you a voice to listen to on immigration, but it's so encouraging to hear you not um, centering yourself as the hero from the very beginning, you know, what I mean? like, so oh, I feel clueless. like sometimes that, that, that happens. And so I think our listeners will appreciate knowing that, you know, you even had, you know, these thoughts that things could be so, so linear and so black and white and so simple and easy. Um, and as you found out, that wasn't really the case. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I was very, very clueless and, and I mean, I still think some of those premises of like premises, I don't know that word, but like <laughs> that we should be welcoming and that people should go through a lawful process. I, in some ways, I do still really believe that. I just rec I just have having walked through that whole process, I realize how that's just not always possible and that our right. our system is not set up in a way that, you know, I, I had a friend who actually um, was speaking about her her status. Um, and she said, if there was, if, if I could follow the law, I absolutely would. Like, I don't like living mm -hmm. like this. And I right. think that really struck me because yeah, nobody wants to live in this state of unknown and fear and limbo. Um, but for right. so many people, there's just, it, it's not always an option. So. Yeah, mm. yeah. So you wrote a book called Love Undocumented Risking Trust in a Fearful World. And one of the quotes that caught me from that book is lack of relationship is a breeding ground for fear. Fear and anxiety pervade the conversation about immigrants and refugees. 
Fear is escalating isolation, which yields even more insecurity and uncertainty. And so what I love about kind of what you just unpacked for us in the, you know, on the third date with your now husband is that there was a relationship there. Mm -hmm. And so you maybe received that news differently than you would if you hadn't even, you know, known your husband or known. I also like how you talked about the things that you had in common, right? Because you, in spending time with your husband, you learned all these things that you had in common and actually how alike your, um, places of origin were. And so there were already these connecting points um, in place and a relationship in place. And so as you learned things about him, there was like almost a safety net to catch that, you know? Um, And since then you've had the opportunity to continue relationships with people and you visited the border a couple of times, more than a couple of times, but here recently. And I was wondering if you could share um, a story with us or more than one story if you want. <laughs> sure. Well, you know, um, we, we went through this whole process together as a couple, um, which is what I kind of detail in the book, but spoiler alert, we do end up married, which you probably already figured out. Um, <laughs> and, and when my husband first got his, uh, documentation, I, I called him, he was at work and I'm like, I got this, I got this mail from, you know, the government and it, I feel like there's a card inside, you know, I'm like squeezing it and bending it. And he's like, oh my word, open the mail. Like, what are you doing? And so were you married at that point? Yes. And we had okay. been married for a little while. And, uh, and so I know I'm like, it's a federal crime to open someone else's mail. He's like, you're being ridiculous. Open my mail. <laughs> like, I want to know what's inside. <laughs> uh, I'm a bit of a rule follower actually, which makes this whole story sort of even more kind of interesting, I think, for me of walking through all this. But um, so I open it up and I'm like, your green card is here. And I'm like, very emotional and very excited. And my husband's like, let's test it out. Let's go to the board. You know, we were still living in LA. And so he's like, let's go to Tijuana tonight. You know, we leave. <laughs> Usually when people say, let's go to Tijuana tonight, like things are going to get weird. <laughs> Yes. So he, and he was working construction then. So he was like, he didn't get off until like super late at nine o'clock or something. So we drive down to San Diego and the next morning we drive to Mexico and just by sheer coincidence, happenstance, we kind of end up, um, at the border on the Tijuana side, um, by the beach. So it's like the westernmost part of the border. And, we're just kind of hanging out. It was sort of this surreal experience. You've kind of got border patrol trucks, like kind of driving back and forth on the other side. And I mean, at this point we haven't yet tried to re-enter the U S so we're like, hope this all works out <laughs> um, because if they don't check your documents going into Mexico at that time. Um, and so we were sitting there when all of a sudden, like everyone starts moving everyone, you know, people were just sort of sitting at the beach, sitting by the wall. There's lots of art there. There's different statues and things. And, um, people started moving towards the, the wall and we're like, what is going on? Well, ironically, this area at the beach, um, is called Friendship Park and it was, um, established by Pat Nixon, first lady in the seventies. And, at, you know, at that time, she actually made a comment. At that time, there was kind of like a barbed wire fence between the two countries. And her statement was like, I hope this fence isn't here for long. Um, and you know, now it's like, it's a very intense fence um, in that part of the border. But um, when we were there, this was about 10 years ago, um, it was kind of like a chain link fence. So you could kind of touch hands between it or um, we saw a couple passing a cup of coffee, kind of like pouring coffee and passing it in between the, the grate of the wall. And so we're sitting there watching that the U.S. side had just opened their part of the park that allowed visitors to come up all the way to the fence. And then we realized that it's families visiting each other through the fence. And Mm -hmm. um, I remember seeing this couple who just literally pulled out like camp chairs. And there was a a woman and a young boy on the Mexico side and a man on the U S side. And they just pulled out camp chairs, drank coffee, and they were just chatting. And we were still newly married at that time. And I remember just like, my whole heart, like in my chest, just kind of recognizing like that this was likely a married couple. And eventually we did learn that they were married. And um, 
just recognizing, like seeing that like very physical barrier in between a married couple and -hmm. recognizing how that very well could have been us. It was just this like super jarring and kind of realization experience for me that even though we were there sort of quote unquote celebrating that our case had finally gone through and which had taken several months and um, had been a, a big part of our relationship together, watching someone else who was still living in that reality was just very gripping for me personally. Like, and I was back at that same park, friendship park. So Sarah, um, I have so, a, I have a question. Yeah, Sorry. Please. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> so, so when you, when this happened, I mean, this was kind of like a jarring experience. Um, would you say at that point you were feeling like a, a sympathy for them or at that point were you kind of moving into more of a posture of empathy? You know, I think at that point, we had been, and I know I kind of jumped ahead of this, but we we had been through so much as a couple kind of going through that experience that I had realized how our, our situation was best case scenario at every turn. Um, mm. And so I think for me, there was this deep realization that that could have been us if any one of these things had been different. Um, and our, the whole process of going through the immigration system felt so tenuous. And I mean, and at one point our lawyer told us, Oh, you may have to move to Guatemala. Um, you could be there anywhere from three months to 10 years. You know, it was like super casual, Mm -hmm. just three months to 10 years. You may or may not be allowed back in the country. And, you know, kind of going through that sort of roller coaster of emotions and then recognizing like so many people, their path diverges a different way than ours had. And I think I recognize just this deep, I guess I would say empathy of a sense of like, I saw myself in that couple of like that absolutely right. could have been us if, if any of these tiny things had been just a little bit different. Yeah. I think a turning point for me for just kind of understanding that is and thinking about it is if I'm looking at somebody who is suffering and I like feel bad for them, then, you know, to me, that's a sympathetic view, but we turn to empathy when we start to sit and hurt with them, you know? Absolutely. And going through the process, I mean, we met so many people along the way, people who would advise us about what their experience was like or questions we needed to be prepared for going into the interview. You know, it was very nerve wracking and we hadn't done anything Mm -hmm. wrong, (laughs) but we knew that part of the, part of the process would be to, um, you know, kind of go through, they were going to vet our relationship essentially. Um, and I, I just remember like sitting in the waiting room and Billy's like, what if they're watching us? You know, so he like puts his arm around me. He's like, no, I'm trying too hard. And we're like, we don't know how a couple acts. <laughs> like you're so awkward. Um, and uh, I don't actually think they were watching us in the waiting room, but we were that on edge, you know, like yeah. what if we make one misstep and they don't think our relationship is real. Um, right the stakes were very high. (laughs) Yeah. And that's how it is with um, international adoption too. I Mm. mean, I've sat in those waiting rooms and you have all your papers and you've prayed and you've waited so long and it's one person behind a glass Mm -hmm. that can just shatter everything instantly. And I've experienced that and I've seen, you know, um, our oldest son came to us um, through adoption from Nigeria and, uh, spent a couple months there and in the waiting area, I'd see families, um, so prepared there for standing outside for hours, you know, hours, hours, mm-hmm. hours to have one tiny meeting and total, total lives changed in an instant. And yes. I, I just don't think people understand that. Yes, absolutely. I mean, yeah. you know, I always kind of like want to, will tell people like the book uh, immigration made easy has over 600 pages in it. And so (laughs) (laughs) that's perfect. This is the reality in which so many families are living and, you know, we're trying to figure out how to do this. And that, um, 
even that right there is so much of what's happening right now because you've we've probably heard people talking about asylum seekers and you know we have so many people coming to the border claiming asylum and one of the things that's happening is is that a lot of the cases are being rejected and so one way to interpret that is they weren't really in danger they weren't they weren't really a valid asylum case but one of the other things that's happening is they are not afforded legal representation. So you have people trying to pursue their asylum case without any legal help. And so there's this vast difference in those numbers when people are, are have, have a support system and some legal advice going through that system. You see a much higher rate of people winning those cases and being granted asylum, um, which just kind of speaks to this larger, like it's just so complicated for um you know, an average person to kind of walk their way through. Yeah. So Sarah, you were going to share a story from a more recent time that you were back at Friendship Park. Yeah. So we, yeah, so we went, well, not Billy, but um, I went um, earlier this summer uh, in the springtime. And um, first of all, I had not been there in probably a decade. And so visually there were just a lot of kind of stark differences one of those being, you know, where I had seen people visiting in the past through that kind of um, chain link fence. It's now been replaced with like this very um, tight grate um, so that now people can only touch fingertips. And so, again, it was just it just broke my heart because I'd been there in the past and seen like people introducing babies to family members through that fence. And now it's like you can hardly... Mm even really get a clear visual connection uh, through that space. And they've reduced visiting hours and they have new limits and different things on the U.S. side mm-hmm. um, that is just uh, hard to hard to see. And, um, you know, one of the people that was with us who is a Mexican national, I mean, this basically said to our group, you know, we have received the message. We are not welcome. And you know, it's like, it's so maddening (laughs) to be on this side of that wall and want to say, no, that's not true. You are welcome. But also having to recognize that the way policies are playing out, the way, um, you know, the rhetoric that's being perpetuated, it's, it's being heard and seen across the border. And so, um, Mm. yeah, it's, I think it's a, it's a challenging time for, for people of faith to kind of figure out how to be hospitable and to be welcoming when sometimes you literally can't be because someone is, is not physically welcome. Um, and so, yeah, but we, uh, visited while we were there, we also visited a, um, a migrant shelter that was specifically for women and children. So this was another big difference from when I had been there in the past, because at that time it was predominantly single men, um, entering the U.S. or crossing the border. <clears throat> and that's what I had seen when I was there as well. Um, but the the couple that ran the shelter said, we used to work at the migrant shelter that was for men, and we just kept having women knocking on the door saying, can we stay here? Can me and my children stay here? And so the Salvation Army had opened up a, a migrant shelter, and they've been there about, I think, three years. Um, and it's just to go into a a shelter of where there's just high chairs and pack and plays and toys because these are this is the demographic that's crossing the border or trying to enter the country at this time it's just such a huge shift and we met a woman who was there um and she was willing to kind of share with us a little bit about her story and talked about um just some of the the violence and and real atrocities that she had experienced where she was from in the country. And um, she had two twin infants with her Um, and she was just traveling, just the three of them. And she was, she had taken her number at at the border was kind of waiting for her asylum case. Um, And right when we went, this was in May, right when the zero tolerance policy had been passed. And I remember sitting there listening to her and thinking, don't go. Cause even at that time that they were separating children, even from asylum seekers. And so 
you know, your heart just is kind of looking at this mother with, you know, a baby on each knee and thinking like, don't, don't do it. <laughs> don't go in. But also recognizing that she was in a position where she didn't have much of a choice. Um, and that that just puts families in these really, really difficult situations. Yeah, absolutely. Are you ever able to follow up with these folks that you have talked to or visited there and, and find out if she did enter yeah. or what might have happened? You know, because um, some of the people that we went with had a relationship with that shelter, they did actually get back to us. Um, and it was like so great to hear because it was a few months later and they said that she was not separated from, by the time she entered whatever her situation was, she was not separated from her kids, um, which was worthy of celebration of it in itself. Um, mm -hmm. But that I believe she... She, I know she has been settled with some family and I believe is in the process of her asylum case. And so my hope is that <clears throat> she will be able to, to find some safety and peace in her, in her new situation, even though <clears throat> I know she's been through a lot. And in some ways that's just always going to be coupled with loss, but yeah. it was a very good ending in her particular story. And I was so encouraged to hear that. Yeah. It seems like things are changing so rapidly at the border and with policies and things. I mean, it seems like every few days there's something on the news and something has changed and now we're doing this differently. So I don't know like how helpful it would be to explain terminology per se, but I was wondering what are some of the most common misconceptions about immigration that you maybe encounter or are there immigration myths that you when you have the opportunity and you have a microphone, like would care to debunk for our listeners? Sure. I think right now, one of the things that's coming up the most is I see a lot of misunderstanding about asylum seeking, which is something that in all of the kind of years we've been talking about immigration and doing different things, no one ever talked about asylum seeking. And so it's very interesting to me to see, how much that has increased at the border and then therefore how much kind of the misunderstanding of that process has increased. Mm -hmm. um, because asylum is similar to refugee status, but very different in key ways. And um, to kind of summarize it quickly, like essentially refugees who are um, trying to flee a circumstance in their home country can go to an office, they apply, and then they are assigned to a country. Um, they go through a vetting process. And then when they are assigned to the country and relocated, they receive some benefits from the government in that process. Um, asylum seekers are very different because they cannot apply for asylum until they are in the country. Um, mm -hmm. And so they, so when people say that, you know, all these folks are entering illegally, well, a lot of people are crossing the border and then surrendering to Border Patrol because they're here to claim asylum. And that actually is mm -hmm. the legal process. Um, and so, I mean, some of the statistics on like illegal entry is totally crazy because it's like in 2005, it was like 1.7 million people crossing illegally successfully. And by 2015, it was 170,000. And so it's like these dramatic wow. drops in actual little illegal entry. You would never know that looking at the news. <laughs> right. um, but, but even we met with Border Patrol in South Texas just two months ago, and they showed us this whole video, and it detailed very greatly how much illegal boarding crossing has been reduced. And it's dramatically over the last 10 years. Um, However, mm -hmm. asylum seeking has dramatically increased predominantly from Guatemala, Honduras, and Nicaragua. Um, but that is the legal process. People can't apply for asylum until they get here. Right. Um, and there was some, there was the starting of a creating a um, refugee center in Central America that was, um, that, that process was halted last year. Um, and so that leaves, this is kind of the way for people to come. Um, so that's kind of one of the things and the, and so the, and the other myth would be that illegal border crossing is like skyrocketing. <laughs> right. um, 
But I think for me, probably even to my former self, like when I kind of talked about this idea of like, oh, if, you know, if this relationship gets serious, I hope he works it out. Um, I think one of the most misunderstood things is how few people have a legitimate way to work it out. Um, And so one of the things that whenever we tell our story and we talk about um, that my in-laws applied for visas to come to our wedding and they were denied. And so Mm -hmm. they applied again and they were denied again. And, and both times they kind of met the requirements. I mean, it's, it's a very kind of moving target of requirements, but um, you know, so when we tell people that, Oh, my in-laws were not allowed to come to our wedding. A lot of times it's really surprising because there is this sort of assumption, myself included that, Oh, you just need to, you just need to fill out the paperwork. Um, right. And I, I see this in the, you know, the dark world of the internet where people talk about, well, why didn't they just become citizens? You know, if they didn't right. have something right. to hide, why didn't they just become citizens? And I'm like, Oh man, just, just getting legal permanent residence is one thing. Citizenship's a whole nother layer on top of mm-hmm. that. And um, so, yeah, I know that was, those were really big, <laughs> really big statements. No, that's great. I think but, there's, there's a lot of misconceptions and um, yeah. yeah, it's good. The asylum one, I'm glad you touched on that because I know very little, but the more that I've learned, um, it's very hard to stay calm on as you were saying, the dark corners of the internet because people <laughs> just make some very atrocious claims. And like Kayla said, we both have children that were adopted internationally mm-hmm. and who have immigrated to the United States. And so we know from a very limited perspective, but still like as a American citizen, my sp- myself, English speaking as my first language, like even that process for us was like crazy difficult. Yeah. Um and so then, I mean, I think about people who, who don't have that layer of saying, privilege, those layers of privilege. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And they show up at the border from Guatemala because this is what they're supposed to do to seek asylum. And then, you know, they get swept up into this horrible system that is not treating people like people. So yeah. I'm glad that you unpacked all of that. Yeah. So we've t- we talked about the kind of policy side and kind of unpacking some of what is just happening, right? Like it's just facts. Um, But Sarah, I would love to hear, uh, I know you have, your faith has really what has impacted the lens of which you view immigration and um, called Jesus a subversive savior who never knew a stranger. And I love that so much. So let's dive into kind of how this all fits into God's kingdom, right? Because it's it's complicated, um, and yet Scripture is also really clear. <laughs> yeah, and I I do think before I had personal experiences, I felt like Scripture was really clear in different ways, and so I think that it is through those relationships that sort of expanded my lens for both understanding God and understanding the Bible. Um, and even as I was in the process of reading the or writing the book, I became obsessed with reading the story of Moses because I was writing during this time where there um, was a lot of stuff starting to come on the news, particularly about um, unaccompanied minors and children and mothers crossing the border. And then I'm reading in the story of Moses about a baby whose life was in danger from the moment he was born and the really hard choices that his parents made to protect his life. And for mm-hmm. me, it was just like paradigm altering. You know, it's like my head was spinning <laughs> just of kind of, because I think as a mom, you're, you're hearing stories of kids crossing the border or going through this and you're thinking, Oh my gosh, I just can't even imagine. I can't imagine being in a circumstance where that would feel like the best choice. And it's hard to put yourself in those shoes and to understand what what families must be feeling. And so when I was reading it in the Bible of this, this couple who hid their baby for three months from the authorities and then put him in a basket and floated him down the river, trusting God to take care of him, mm. it's like so just kind of blew open that story for me from a perspective of what families are going through when they 
when they are in situations where their children's lives are in danger. Um, and I think for me as a person of faith lately, I've, I've become very obsessed with this story in general. I just keep reading it and I keep like, I got really into the midwives and Moses's parents. And now I'm really into Miriam mm -hmm. because I feel like, you know, in this moment, how do we understand, you know, one of the questions, every time I go to the border, everyone's like, what do we do? What do we do? And I look to this story of Moses and I'm like, this was a family who was mixed status, if you will. Like you have one sibling in this family whose life is in danger. And you have one sibling who, because of her gender and the time she was born, her life is not in danger, but they are family. And so how do you, as a family, with this metaphor of us as the family of God, what do we do when our siblings are in danger? And what Miriam did was walk alongside Moses. She looked out for him. She stayed with him as long as she could. And she was just present, trying to be present for him. And when the time came, she spoke up. When there was this moment where she could advocate for him and restore his relationship with his biological mother, she did. And I'm just like so drawn into her story because mm -hmm. I feel this call of like, this is what it means to be the family of God when some of our family's lives are in danger and they're having to make really hard choices. We walk alongside and we speak up when the moment is right. Um, and so for me, that's just all been very much tied together um, in kind of how we think about yeah, this whole situation where children are in danger and families are making hard choices. So when you said speak up when the moment is right, do you have any experiences where you just knew that that was the right time to say something? Oh, man. What a tough question. Because <laughs> that was such a good line. We just have to pull that thread. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think it looks a lot of different ways, right? Mm -hmm. And I will be the first to say that on a macro level, like I am terrible about calling lawmakers, right? But there is a reality around immigration that some of this can only be reconciled through some policy changes. Mm -hmm. And so I'm constantly trying to hold myself accountable to like, it's not enough to just tweet that other people should call their representatives. <laughs> like I should also be calling um I'm not going to say I've ever done that, but maybe I have. And so trying to kind of remember that that's one way we speak up. But then it's also been this like, I think there's micro moments, right? Yes. Of trying to, you know, when hearing those things and thinking, how can I just in love explain what's going on here? And sometimes that's like total, somebody has, you know, a really strongly held opinion and then sometimes it's just sheer lack of knowledge, right? And so I don't know, um, out in California, they have, or they used to, I don't think they have them anymore, um, these caution signs of a family running. You may have seen that at some point. There's mm -hmm. like a mother and a father and like a little girl with braids. And they used to have them on the highways in California because immigrant um, families were sometimes darting across the interstate and it was very dangerous. And so they had wow. these caution signs up to try to warn drivers to be aware of pedestrians running across the street, um, which was highly dangerous for everyone involved. Um, but I was at our local gym here in Georgia and they were doing some kind of theme and they had all these street signs up on the wall and they had that sign and I was like, I don't think they know what this means. <laughs> like, I think they just think this is like caution, school zone or something like that. And I just felt this real, you know, you kind of have that moment where you're like, I have to say something or I'm not gonna be able to sleep tonight. Mm. So like just being able to have that conversation, say, hey, I don't know if you know what that sign's about, but that's actually about immigrant families like in the highway. And, and of course they were like, we had no idea. We will take that down immediately because that doesn't really communicate what we're trying to do. So I say that to kind of, because I think there's this breadth of like speaking up on this sort of national policy way, but then there's also like the hard conversations that sometimes we're having with people in our lives. 
And then there's also just sometimes like, hey, I don't think you know what you're saying. I don't or think doing. it means what you think yeah. it means. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so, I mean, it's sort of a silly example, but for me, it was kind of this moment where I was like, I have learned something in my life that I, I don't know that this person's been through that same journey. So how do I engage them in a loving way is what my hope is. Yeah. In that. Absolutely. And I think too, a lot of people who maybe have misunderstandings or, um, yeah, like I don't think everyone is trying to be outright hateful, but people don't often realize how many of us are affected by immigration. And so for you to, like as a white woman, for you to speak up like that probably, I don't know, I feel like there are things that those of us who are affected, like we find ourselves in environments where people assume they can make certain comments, right? Because it's yeah. uh, the company's not mixed, maybe, you know? Um, and so people might say things around us that we know because of, like you're saying, our experiences with in this, in this instance, immigration, like we can say things that, and we might hear things too, because people have a different comfort level with us than they might with others. And so we might find ourselves in those situations and, and be able to say like, Hey, this actually affects my family in this Mm -hmm. way, or this actually affects one of my close friends in this way. And, you know, maybe that doesn't mean what you think it means. Let's talk about it, you know? Absolutely. So one of the things, um, that I pulled from your website. There's a question. I think it's on the page where you talk about the book, but it says, will you beware or be welcoming? And I love that example that you just gave of Miriam um, walking alongside Moses and staying with him as long as she could and speaking up. And I just wonder if you have other examples of how we can be welcoming. Yeah, I think it's so... um there's so many different factors at play because there's immigration, but then there's also in, in a lot of circumstances, these are cross-cultural relationships, which is sort Mm -hmm. of an added layer of, um, you know, how do we engage? Um, and so, you know, we were at a friend's house. Um, we were at the time we were attending a Spanish church and they all of a sudden said to us like, Oh, we're going to go to, this party, it's at this other person's house. You know them. They go to the church. I'm like, no, I, I don't know who that person is. They're like, get in the car. Get it. And next thing I know, we're like at this, uh, teenagers high school graduation party. And like everything in me is like, this is all wrong. I haven't brought a gift. We were not invited. <laughs> we're just showing up <laughs> with our very active toddlers <laughs> and we just sort of crashed your graduation party. And so, and, my husband and then our, our other friends were, they were all mocking me because they're like, do you need like a paper bag to breathe into? Like, we know this is very uncomfortable for you. <laughs> and like, but the most welcome, but what was so funny, we arrived and everyone's like, we're so glad you're here. Like, this is wonderful. And um, my husband and I talk a lot about sometimes the most welcoming thing you can do is to go into other people's spaces mm. because I definitely... I mean, I was, I'm a born and raised Southerner and like my idea of like hospitality and welcome is like, I'll cook for you or I'll invite you to my home. I will have you, um, you know, be part of our life. I'll engage you in that way. That to me feels like what it means to reach out and be welcoming. But sometimes that's really hard for families who are already having to live in their second culture, like all the time. Um, and that sometimes taking on that burden of discomfort and saying, I'm going to um, kind of put myself in your spaces and that that is a way to show welcome. And so I think, especially right in this kind of climate, I've thought a lot about that. Like, what does it look like to shop regularly at a at, at the carniceria or a grocery store that serves a different population? Um, what does it look like to attend services at an immigrant church, you know, regularly to kind of build those relationships by putting myself into those worlds rather than trying to be welcoming by hoping people will show up into my world. Mm. Um, and I think that's easier said than done, but I think it can communicate a very powerful, um, message of welcome when, when we're able to, to do that. Mm. That's great. 
Yeah, that that is good. Um, so you have a couple of things going on in terms of ways that people can learn more and even um, action steps that people can take right now. Do you want to share about the roadmap and then what's going on with the version Bible app? Yeah, sure. Um, so yeah, I'm very excited at, uh, that you can go on the version app and there is a seven day Bible reading plan. Um, if you search for Love Undocumented. And so it's some excerpts from the book, um, as well as scriptures connected to the topics for each day. And so it's just a really great um, way to kind of walk through that, whether in a group or individually. And I, I hope that people will find that really useful as they kind of start to think about, um, you know, what does it mean to look at the Bible in this way? And, um, and yes, the roadmap is I send out a weekly email on Fridays um, partly because, like you mentioned earlier, immigration keeps changing uh, so often. Mm. And so, yeah. um, you know, I wanted to kind of offer a way to sort of keep people updated. But I also felt really strongly about not wanting to just be like, well, here's a bad news letter that you receive every week about the, all the terrible <laughs> things happening in immigration. And so, <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I don't want to receive that email. I don't want to write it and I don't want to send it. So, um, I really wanted to create something that was super short and and kind of easy to digest, but that would kind of keep people informed about what's happening with immigration, but would also um, include positive stories of the ways churches are showing welcome, as well as um, just in general, I think trying, I always say it's called the roadmap, navigating faith, justice, and culture, because those are really things that I feel like I'm constantly working through. Um, but it's really important for me to do it in such a way that it's like, I, I want to acknowledge injustice and I want to make space for lament and for being present in what's really going on in our world. But I also want to celebrate the ways God is at work. And so um, you can sign up for that at sericasada.com slash roadmap. Awesome. Thank you for providing those resources. I really look forward to the roadmap every week because there are times throughout the week where I hear snippets of the news and I have this internal turmoil of like, oh my gosh, all this stuff is happening. What's going on? And then I get the roadmap on Friday and I think, oh, Sarah's not freaking out. So I don't need to freak out either. And there are actually things I can do. <laughs> and there are good things happening because you do always share positive stories as well. And I think being committed to celebrating those things is important too. Mm -hmm. So to help us all, help us all keep moving forward in the midst of what feels like a super crazy time. So yeah. Thank you for doing that every week. Thank you. Yeah. Kayla, do you have any last questions? Oh my goodness. I have so many questions. Sarah's really like, okay, get me off the hot seat. <laughs> no, Sarah, I'm just so thankful that we can have somebody who has experienced, um, firsthand and then sat with others who have experienced it firsthand because a lot of us, I don't know, I, I have only experienced it with my son and, you know, with, with his neighbors in his home country, but I, I don't know so many of these stories. So for you to, to tell us is a really powerful thing because we are people that connect with stories. And when this is what we've been saying, right? Like when we can think of a person, when we can think of a mother with two babies on her lap, all of a sudden it gets more real. And then we can start sharing those stories and then things start happening. And, and something that I think is really cool is that your book was published, um, with Harold Press, which is a smaller uh, Christian publisher that I just am like head over heels here heels for, because I love their idea of offering kind of a third way approach, you know. And it's not there's so many um, Christians, and they're coming from such great things, and I and I usually agree with them. But there's kind of this idea that the only way we can make changes through political systems, and I kind of tend to more of um, a subversive view of the world and a little bit more of an Anabaptist thought where we have to go beyond that. Like we can't just mm. work in these little boxes that um, we have created for ourselves. And, and like you said, sometimes that's 
the only way certain policies will change. But I think that we have to think so much bigger. And so um, when I heard about your book and then I heard about your publisher, I was like, oh, this is a book I want to read. Like all of a sudden I'm way more interested now. (laughs) So I just want to put that plug out there. (laughs) Yeah, they are a fantastic publisher and it was great to work with them. And it was, you know, it was such a challenging question because when you're talking about immigration from a kind of faith perspective, there's always this kind of like, yeah, but it's illegal. Mm. And so like, what is that tension for people of faith? It's like, I might feel pity or I might feel sympathy that somebody's going through a really difficult time. Um, but you know, the law is the law. And, and I resonate with that deeply. I already mentioned I'm, I'm, you know, a rule follower and that's very much kind of what my perspective was before I got involved. And, um, you know, I think a lot about, um, some of the stories that I've experienced and some of them I share in the book of like, has this person broken God's law? And what does it mean to God's law versus the state's law? Mm-hmm. And how do those in- interplay? Um, was really powerful for me to have to answer that question. Cause I actually didn't really want to answer that question. They're like, you have to write about <laughs> the fact that there's these different systems. Um, kind of governing people. Yeah. I the story of Moses has something to tell us about the law too, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> the Midwest. Yeah, there's a lot of law breaking in that story. Yes, there is. Yes, <laughs> when you look at it. It's probably why it's one of my favorites because yeah. I'm not a rule follower. <laughs> 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 well, Sarah, where can our listeners follow you online? Yes. Yeah, so, um, you can find all the things at my website, which is Sarah Casada, which is hard to spell. So I'll spell it real quick. It's S-A-R-A-H-Q-U-E-Z-A-D-A.com. Um, and then that's also um, where you can find me on Facebook and Instagram, Twitter as well. So awesome. it's at Sarah Casada. Well, thanks so much for yeah. being with us and writing the book and sharing the stories and helping too bring the stories to us so that they are, they are like Kayla said, real and we can put a human face on them. We appreciate everything Mm -hmm. that you're doing. Yeah. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much. And for our listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, we would love it. If you would head to iTunes um, and leave us a review there that helps Mm. other people find the podcast and um, enjoy these conversations that we're having. Also, you can support us on Patreon. We are intentionally ad free and we'd like to keep it that way. So if you head to um, patreon.com backslash upside down podcast, then you can learn more about supporting us there. We have some fun new um, Patreon content that will be coming out from the gathering that we had Mm -hmm. in September. So you can jump on that beforehand and get those goodies. Yeah. And our up. Patreon donors, they also get the upside download newsletter. And we have definitely featured Sarah before and we will probably feature her again because she just keeps putting out such compelling content. So Sarah, I don't even know if you know that, but we've been, we've been following and sharing. We're, we're really you. grateful for your voice and we're grateful for just our, our community, our hashtag upside down tribe. <laughs> Yep. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> Don't worry. My husband. <laughs> my husband is our podcast editor, so you'll nobody else will ever know unless he does some outtakes, which sometimes he adds to the very end after the music plays for the three that stick around. <laughs>